Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, September 18th, we're studying Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 to 30. In today's text, the Lord speaks to Israel concerning the sexual purity that he desires for them, because they are his people and he is their God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Rick Mars. Dr. Mars serves as Senior Professor of Practical Theology and Pastoral Counseling at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Mars, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's very good to be back with you, Pastor Apple. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Mars, we get to talk about Leviticus 18 today. Talk to us a little bit about the book of Leviticus, any context from that book or elsewhere in the scriptures that will help us with the text we've got today. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm questioning my judgment even on volunteering for this particular chapter, but uh, I just said, well, I, I teach a class on uh, care of souls in a sexualized society. We live in a very sexualized society uh, in the United States, in North America, in, in the Western world now. And so uh, it's important to look at these verses in the Old Testament in their context, important to look at some similar New Testament verses in their context so we can know how the Lord wants us to respond to him in faith in our, in our embodied selves and, and showing love to one another in ways that he has designed and not in ways that he has not designed. So he kind of spelling that out here for the Hebrews coming into the promised land, or at least hoping they're coming into the promised land soon at this point. He'd given them the Ten Commandments back in Exodus 20, including the Sixth Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. But he's also going to spell out in longer form here in Leviticus 18 what that means. And he wants his covenant people living out sexually pure and decent lives, as, as Luther said it in the, in the catechism. The, uh, the neighboring peoples around them are not doing that. And so that's specifically going to, going to come out here as we, as we read those verses. So. Right. So the Sixth Commandment is going to be a, a pretty important context for us as we consider the various forms of impurity that the Lord prohibits here in this chapter. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. before we before we jump into this chapter with all of the prohibitions that are listed, it would be good at least to lay a little bit of groundwork for the positive. So what? why the Sixth Commandment from a positive sense? Why these prohibitions from a positive sense? What's the good gift in marriage and sexuality that God so much wants us to have that he protects it in these ways. Yeah, yeah, well, even Luther kind of emphasizes that because the sixth commandment meaning is the only one that doesn't have a not in it uh, the way he normally writes the other nine. It uh, just wants people to lead sexually, well, chaste and decent lives. It sometimes gets translated. There's actually a very good new CTCR document out if people haven't come across that. Uh, Commission on Theology and Church Relations puts out new documents every few months on various issues, but uh, there's a good one on chaste and decent lives, how Lutheran Christians can and should live out or think about these things. 
that's available at lcms.org uh, under CTCR. And again, I I just finished a Bible study with a class for a uh, congregation in the last couple of weeks, and and used that as kind of the foundation, because God did create us male and female. He He put that into our embodied creation and once wanted Adam and Eve to live that out in a righteous way and wants all of us to live it out in a righteous way with man and wife, not sexuality as our as our culture would put it. But uh, I always challenge people when I teach this class uh, at the seminary, actually two different classes, but uh, one for MDiv students and deacon students and one for graduate students. But when I teach it, I require the students to read the Song of Solomon six or eight times during the course of the class. And uh, they do report to me that, yeah, reading it that second, third, fourth time, they get a better sense of, wow, God is really elevating marital love and actually the sexual acts of marital love in this very poetic, beautiful way in the Song of Solomon. But very few Christians read the Song of Solomon very often. Uh, very few pastors lead Bible studies on the Song of Solomon. Uh, I think we should use that. Uh, and there are various Bible studies. I just found out from a student that the Wisconsin Synod has a very good Bible study on the Song of Solomon that he had used in, in his Bible study uh, for a congregation before. So uh, it's it's there. It's what God gave us to say this is a beautiful thing. Sexuality is a wondrous and beautiful thing that I have given to you when used the way that, that I, God, designed it. Please don't use it in other ways that are not according to the design. And then that's where Leviticus 18 comes in with all the knots, knots, knots. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the, I think of the, the pastoral address concerning holy matrimony in the, the service from Lutheran Service book, that one of the things that the pastor is mm-hmm. given to say is that marriage is a gift of God that comes even before the, before the fall. That, I mean, right. that's, that's just a, a wonderful reminder of just how precious a gift that this is, that it, it, come, it was given before the fall into sin. It was blessed by God in paradise there as a reminder of just how wonderful this gift is. And, and so given how wonderful it is, then how much more pain and, and hurt comes about when we misuse that. The, the level of joy that's there when it's received as God gives it is so high at the same time, the level of, of misery and sorrow when it's misused is just as, as great on the, on the opposite end of the spectrum. Certainly, we're going to encounter that here in Leviticus 18. Yeah. Yeah. The, the other thing that I think strikes me about just the, the context of, of Genesis 1 and 2 and the way that God gives marriage to man and woman, to husband and wife there, and he, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, that, that thought of the way that this gift of marriage then extends into the family— I think is, is also present in Leviticus 18, as, as we'll see the, the varying prohibitions concerning the Sixth Commandment that then go to extended relative, extended family relatives, and that, that notion of the, the family as a, a unit that starts with husband and wife, and the way that they share together things, maybe it's something that we don't always think about in our families today, but that, that thought I think is present there in Leviticus 18. Yeah, very much. So family is important and not not misusing sexuality within the family is obviously spelled out here very very clearly. Yeah. 
Yeah. So with those, those thoughts in mind, here is Leviticus chapter 18. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, brought up in your father's family, since she is your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister, she is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother, that is, you shall not approach his wife, she is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law, she is your son's wife, you shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife, it is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, and you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness, they are relatives, it is depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, so that the land became unclean lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God." That is our text for today. That's Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 to 30. Now, Dr. Mars, before we get to that, that list of prohibitions, which does stand out, I think, in most of our minds as we read this chapter, it's really important that we pay attention to how the Lord introduces everything in the first five verses. He gives a very strong theological reason for what he's about to lay out for them. What, do, what does he say them as to, the, to them as the reasons why he's giving these instructions? Yeah, again, these verses 1 through 5 can be very easy for us to skip over, uh, to uh, 
not really think that much about and get to the, the meat of the issue, we think, but these are very important verses because he's speaking his name, Yahweh's name upon them, promising them life through his name. And he repeats that phrase, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, uh, several times in this chapter, which again reminds them, reminds us of the law gospel message of the first commandment. I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods, which again from a law orientation is, oh yeah, (laughs) he's a big guy up there, I should not mess with him. But also he's placing his name upon us, his face upon us. He loves us. He wants to be with us. Uh, He wants to guide us. Uh, It's a very gospel-focused, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord message as well. But uh, yeah, we don't want to skip over. So yeah, to the, I mean, to the, the gospel aspect of those, that declaration, I am the Lord, I think the rest of the book of Leviticus that we've read so far really emphasizes that. We, we've seen throughout the book of Leviticus that God's goal is to give his holiness to his people. And the only way that you can have holiness is, if, mm-hmm. is in the ways that he gives them, not by your own self-appointed ways. So you go through the sacrifices that he has given you, and he gives you his holiness. You, you distinguish between clean and unclean, and that's the way that you receive his holiness. And so if, if that's what Leviticus has been all about, God giving his holiness, then chapter 18 is just the, the natural outflow of that good news, that gospel. Mm-hmm. He's made you his holy people. Here's what that looks like in your life, and especially for this chapter in terms of your sexuality. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on to talk about, well, they don't have good models for this sexuality. They've come out of Egypt, and Egypt has sinful, unclean, even abominable sexual practices connected with their idol worship. And now they're coming into Canaan, and here they have more sinful, unclean, even abominable sexual practices, uh, even various forms of incest, child sacrifice to idols, homosexual behavior, bestiality. That must have all been tied to their idol worship in various ways, and the Lord is just saying, you will not be like those people. Uh, they are being vomited out. Well, we'll get to that later on in the chapter. So, Right. So neither the, the practices that they're coming out of in Egypt, nor the practices that they're going to see as they enter into Canaan, neither one of those are to provide the example. Rather, the Lord's Word is the, the way by which they will continue to live in this holiness that he has given. And I do think, you know, just to to note that the pagan religions of both Egypt and Canaan then result in a lot of these abominable practices is a is a maybe it's a, an underlying point, but one that's worth noting, at least in in brief, that you know, these pagan religions, they say, well, what's the, what's the big deal? You know, yeah, they don't have a they don't have the right God, but that that's okay. They're still nice people. Well, their false religion led them to be very not nice people in the ways that are described here in this chapter. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, and we have to watch that then ourselves as well. Uh, in what ways do our other religions in our culture, and I'll even put secularization as yeah. one of those religions, how does that tempt us to uh, behave in ways, and again, very pertinent to the sexual uh, identity issues that are so prominent in the Western world, especially here in the United States now. We'll maybe touch on those a little bit later. But uh, yeah. um, 
Yeah, we are constantly tempted. And it kind of goes back to the first temptation um, of the serpent to Eve. Did God really say this? And here we have laid out in Leviticus, yeah, God really did say this about incest and homosexuality and other things. Uh, We should strive to live holy lives according to his good guidance. And again, it's not because he doesn't want us to enjoy the created bodies that he's given us. He's just saying, I want you to enjoy the created bodies that I've given you in these particular clean ways that will be good for you, your wife, your children, your culture, your church, and so forth. Yeah, yeah. I I appreciate that you you called secularism a religion, because I, I think that can help us as Christians when we think about how to approach and respond to the the various errors that we see around us in the world, especially when it comes to matters of the Sixth Commandment. I think there is a temptation for us as Christians to focus so much on them, and certainly they are are very, very wrong. I mean, we, we need to say that mm-hmm. very clearly. There, there are a lot of perversions that are out there that are very, very harmful to people. But sometimes I think we we fixate so much on that that we forget the religious background of it, that there really is a first commandment issue at play here too. It's not only a sixth commandment issue, that there is a, there's a false religion mm-hmm. behind these things, not just a, a false way of living, but a false belief that, that also needs to be addressed. And I, I think that's important for us as Christians so that we don't only think that our job is somehow done if we can you know, fix all the sixth commandment issues. We need to be proclaiming who the true right. God is. The first commandment has to be the the center, even when it comes to the sixth commandment also. Yeah. Well, I think that is what I, I tell students in these classes, and they read various books by other authors that, that say similar things. Our culture has done a very good, effective job. I won't say a good job, but an effective job of of persuading people that their sexual identity is their main identity. And if you think like that, well, if somebody then is taking away from you through religious laws or whatever, some aspect of your sexual behavior because they're misguided old 2,000, 3,000-year-old beliefs, well, you're harming their sexual identity, and that's considered immoral by the the secular left. Um, But it's... If our main identity as Christians is our baptized identity, who we are in Christ, we've actually been baptized into his death and resurrection, and so therefore our bodies are not our own. Uh, We are a temple of the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, It's just how can we then enjoy, live out this baptized identity, Christian identity that is our primary identity? It doesn't mean that our sexual identity is is unimportant. I mean, it's important to me that I'm a man. It's important to me that my wife is a woman. Uh, It's important to me that my kids and grandkids are the various sexes and genders that they they are. Uh, In fact, that word gender is a a relatively new term just coming up in the last few decades, not not a uh, historical term. It's a socially, social construct term, not, not a biological term, but it's been the culture has been very effective at pushing that kind of mentality that you should act out as you feel like you should because that's who you are sexually. But our main identity is our baptized identity, and that's wondrous and eternal. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, and I think that's a, that's such a wonderful point for us to keep in mind that the order of Leviticus 18 keeps for us. It starts with I am the Lord your God, you are my people. Here then is how that you live that out in terms of your sexuality it, that our identity first and foremost is one who has who is baptized for us as Christians. In the book of Leviticus, I think it's a, a similar idea, right? You are one uh, that the blood of the sacrifices has atoned for. God has provided for your atonement. So now what do you do in terms of your various parts of life? That's what this part of Leviticus is getting at. And so, yeah, keeping that in order, starting with our identity as one who has been forgiven, died for by Christ, that is so key so that w- then we take, well, what does that mean for me to live as a man? Or what does that mean for, for someone to live as a woman? How, how, do those, how does my baptized identity influence that? That's the question that we, we constantly want to keep coming back at. And as you said, the world has been very effective in thinking, causing us to think about different identities as central. Uh, the church continues to need to proclaim, your identity first and foremost is a baptized child of God, one for whom Christ has died. He has shed his blood for you to forgive your sins. And, and that's the starting place. And again, I think, I think that helps us then uh, get a, a handle better on this, on this chapter with all of the, the things that are talked about, the various perversions, the things that must be avoided for the sake of remaining and, and living in that baptismal identity that Christ has given. So mm-hmm. the chapter then, after the Lord gives this introduction, the theological foundation, starting in verse 6, there is the command not to uncover nakedness, and then there's a, a various listing of, of relatives that are given, you're not to uncover the nakedness of, of this person. So what does that phrase that gets repeated over and over again mean, to uncover someone's nakedness? Yeah, it was, it was interesting going back and looking at some of the commentary, especially John Kleine's commentary, very, very good, uh, from CPH on, uh, on Leviticus. But uh, it is a euphemism, in a sense, for not having sexual intercourse with, but it's also said in this way that is broader not uncovering the nakedness of all these various people. We have to remember as, as American Christians, these people would have been living, well, in, in tents probably at this particular time, but hoping to move into uh, homes. But their homes would have been, you know, a series of r- interconnected rooms where the father and mother and maybe the youngest kids lived in one room and then some of the older kids lived in another room. And then when they got married, they added on another room and the, the new daughter-in-law moved into the house and they just kind of kept adding rooms. Uh, they would be living and working in very close proximity to each other hour after hour after hour. And there wouldn't be, you know, the the locked doors or the shut doors as, as easily as what we have in our homes now. The Israelites wouldn't have had that level of privacy sure. in, in their lives. And so trying to make sure that you don't see the genitals of your other relatives seems to be being implied here, uh, which I think is also important for us. Well, pornography is another big issue we haven't talked about uh, in our in our culture now, it's seen as as a normal thing for especially young men to do, but about half as many young women do it as 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 men do, uh, and not just young women and men. It's it's middle aged and older, but it's it's such a temptation to want to look at other people's private parts of their body, and that's not what God is 
God is saying that's not good for you to do. Do not uncover the nakedness of these other people. Um, just with you and your wife is the first and foremost. So, Right. Again, the, the positive teaching of the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery, is that God would have us honor and uphold marriage. And so all of these prohibitions stem from that. The, the right place for sexual relationship is in between a husband and a wife and nowhere else. And so for the Israelites, you know, at this point, camping in the promised land, or not camping outside the promised land there at Mount Sinai, going to go into the promised land, as you said, the, the living situation is going to be different. So the, the reasoning for, for mentioning all these various relationships is that you, you might be living with some of these people in the same household. And so the, the temptation is going to be right there to engage in, in this sort of incest, and again, just even just the, the gazing upon uh, someone else in their nakedness, that temptation mm-hmm. is right there. But even even beyond that, just the the interconnectedness of the family makes these things inappropriate as well. So to to gaze on the nakedness of a relative is to is not just to bring shame upon her, but it is to bring shame really upon on yourself and the the whole family because of that interconnectedness of the family. I think that's that's part of this that that sometimes we miss in our more individualized society. Yeah. When, when husband and wife become one flesh, they become as close or closer than blood relatives. And so it's in a sense, when you look upon uh, someone else that is already one flesh with not you, uh, with somebody else, then you are disturbing that one fleshedness of that particular marriage. And that's what the Lord is trying to say here. So... Yeah, that's right. Again, he's, he is upholding the good gift of husband and wife and all of the blessings that he gives to a man and a woman in that relationship and to protect from all the harm that comes when that relationship is misused. We're going to keep talking about the various implications of this chapter on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Dr. Rick Mars this morning about Leviticus 18. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, September 18th. We're studying Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 to 30, with the Reverend Dr. Rick Mars. He is Senior Professor of Practical Theology and Pastoral Counseling at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Mars, prior to the break, in talking about the variety of ways in which the Lord says, do not cover the uncover the nakedness of, of various people, you mentioned that the modern-day issue of pornography comes into view here, 
Talk to us a little about the dangers of of pornography, why the Lord would would forbid something like that, how that applies to Leviticus 18. Yeah, thank you, because it's a rampant problem in our our society and cultures today and churches today. Uh, And we usually point to Jesus' words, uh, Matthew 5, where he says, you know, look upon another woman with, with lust. You've committed adultery in your heart. And that's kind of the main focus for or uh, biblical teachings about pornography. Again, they they wouldn't have had pornography issues back at this time because they didn't have photographs. They didn't have well, they they would have been able to draw drawings. That, that might have happened some, but but actual photographs of other people didn't come about until the 1900s. So uh, uh, and then it became a very popular thing in the 1900s to take photographs of of naked women. But uh, uh, People tend to think, oh, I'm, I'm not really doing anything. I'm not harming anybody if I'm looking at pornography. Well, one, a, a human being, human creature of God stood in front of that camera and exposed themselves. So it was harmful to them to, to do that. Um, and two, they forget that we are embodied creatures. And there's a body of evidence that shows that as men especially will look at more and more pornography, it changes the synaptic structures of their brain to want more and more of that visually. And for many men, it has an impact. Uh, they are not able to perform as well sexually with their partner, with their with their wife, uh, because they've been looking at this pornography. And so they don't get excited by her in the same sort of way they get excited uh, by looking at this pornography. So uh, again, people think it's it's a harmless, but it's not harmless. It does rewire our brains and can do harm to relationships. Women who discover that their husbands are uh, looking at pornography feel very shamed themselves, and so it's harmful to the relationship in that way. Um, yeah, it's just a pervasive, sinful problem. And then I point people to Ambassadors of Reconciliation has a very good Bible study on responding to sexual temptation in a high-tech society is the name of it. Uh, it's the best Bible study I've seen on on these issues because it starts with the gospel. We can't just set up rules and say, okay, now then you've got these people around you that are going to watch your computer and make sure that you're not looking at things on your computer in these various ways. But we have to start with the gospel and help people to realize they are forgiven for the sins that they've been trapped in. Uh, And again, sexual sins are just so easily entrapping uh, for people and damaging to their lives. Yeah. I mean, so for that that matter of of pornography, and and you mentioned the great shame that's involved by by everyone that that is a part of that, For, for someone who's struggling with that temptation and has become, you know, just... That that's become a big part of of their shame. How, like, what what should they do when when they, when they they realize that this is not good? What I mean, just some practical advice from a from a pastoral counseling perspective. Well, one can confess. Uh, I I did hear another counselor say a week or two ago: be careful about confessing too quickly to your spouse. Go and confess to pastor, maybe work with a Christian counselor. There's a group here in St. Louis, and, and there's some similar groups in other big cities, 
a group in St. Louis called First Light St. Louis, which is primarily a Presbyterian sort of group, but it uh, incorporates lots of other Christians into it. But but they actually have guidelines for the men who come to them who are entrapped by pornography and say, okay, we want you to work with our counselor for in this way and then tell your wife in these ways because um, they just know how much the damage it, it right. can be to marriages when it's when the when the man vomits out uh, what what he's been doing in a uh, way that's harmful to his wife, there are just better ways to to do it. So, so yeah, talk to a counselor, talk to your pastor, confess your sin, have a plan for how you're going to have accountability partners and accountability software on your computer so that it's more difficult for you to to see those sorts of things. Again, pornography is different now than even when I was a kid. Uh, I mean. When I was a younger man, guys my age had to actually go and seek out Playboy magazines or or, yeah. or physical magazines of some way. Uh, there was a little bit of danger involved in, in getting those. But now then, pornography is striving to come at us through our computers, uh, asking us, do you want to see this person naked? When we're, no, I'm not wanting to do that at all. But uh, um, yeah, it's just... Yeah. The devil, the world, and our sinful flesh are working together, especially in this Sixth Commandment issue, and especially with pornography. So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's certainly a great danger, and that's why, I mean, just seeing how the Lord upholds the gift of marriage and sexuality between a husband and a wife, and, and recognizing the goodness of that gift helps us to see even more clearly, I think, the great danger that's there when it is abused in such harmful ways. And so, as, as you said, when if that is something uh, that a person has become entrapped by, confession to a pastor, talking to it, receiving that spiritual care from the pastor, talking to a counselor, uh, and, and you know, seeking the counsel of God's Word and the help of, of close friends are, are all very helpful ways to live in that baptized identity, which is where it all starts, the the one who is a forgiven child of God, to live in that, those are all very helpful, helpful considerations. For again, you know, maybe we're not all living in the same household with our family members as the Israelites were in Leviticus chapter 18, but the issues that are at play in this chapter very much attack us just in just in different ways, uh, and, right. and in ways that still can can provide or can bring just as great harm. So the, the Lord's warning here is, is very well received. And I do want to emphasize, I think it's important to do both of those vocations, a counselor and a pastor, because the counselor may help the uh, the counselee to dig down and try to figure out, well, why am I tempted in this way? What happened to me at earlier stages of life? Uh, what's bringing about this shame? Uh, Kurt Thompson's book, The Soul of Shame, I've pointed people to very, very very, very good on, on a whole variety of issues uh, with though, but then also going to see their pastor because the pastor can pronounce absolution. The counselor can't do that, uh, can't tell them directly that I forgive you your sins. Uh, they can tell them about Jesus if they're a Christian counselor, but they can't actually do absolution. So the combination of both, I think, is important for a lot of a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. A pastor has is, is not a counselor often, but uh, the pastor has different things to offer and, and things mm-hmm. that you need. That that care right. for your soul that a pastor will give, especially through the absolution, is is definitely something to include in the in the fight that a Christian would engage in against such sexual sins. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. 
Now, as as the chapter continues, again, there's this this long list where over and over again you're not to uncover the nakedness of, of various people. Uh, the chapter then starts to shift a little bit. In, in verse 19, you're not to uncover a woman in her nakedness during her menstrual uncleanness. Part of that was addressed in chapter 15 concerning the, the matter of clean and unclean when it came to various discharges. In verse 20, you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. That sounds pretty pretty close to just the Sixth Commandment straight up. You shall not yeah. commit adultery. I mean, so again, all, all in line. In verse 21, though, there's there's something in within this chapter that, that seems maybe a little bit out of place, or, or it's harder to connect the dots there. In chapter tw- or in verse twenty one, there's the prohibition against child sacrifice, and particularly to the the false god Molech, which of course we we know this is bad. But how does how does that fit into this chapter? Yeah, yeah, it seems like these previous verses are you know it's just saying you know be aware, don't have sex or don't uncover the nakedness of your close relatives, you know, cousins, second cousins is perhaps okay to get married to, but not not to others. So uh, at least back at that time, I'm not sure legally is here in the United States now. But uh, but then it does shift, like you said, to Molech. And probably because there was sexuality involved in the idol worship of both the Egyptians and the, the Canaanites. And Molech was apparently this horrendous idol that they were sacrificing children to, uh, the seed of their of their wombs, uh, the seed of of their procreation was being given over in child sacrifice uh, for better crops or something like that, and that's just completely against God's plan. Uh, child sacrifice has never been part of of uh, of His plan, other than His Son Jesus Christ, who is a complete unique situation. Um, so yeah, he's striving to get these people to go, please do not practice, not even a please there, just don't practice yeah. these uh, sorts of uh, mentalities in these in this new culture you're going into. It is an abomination, and it's why they are being spit out of this land, uh, being vomited out of this land, is because of this sort of deep sinfulness that they're involved in, so... Yeah. Now, as as then the Lord continues his instructions in verse 22, he says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. It, keeping in mind that this chapter has been primarily speaking to the men, it has the men in view. So this is speaking about homosexuality. Right. Talk to us about this prohibition, because this is obviously another big thing in our world today. Yeah. This is another, well, this is what's called the clobber verses by some on the liberal side, uh, that they... They, they realize that there's only about six or seven verses, I think, in both Old Testament and New Testament that speak against homosexual behavior, and so they feel clobbered when we as Christians bring them up. And we, we sometimes forget when, when those verses do come up, they're embedded as just like one verse or one phrase in a whole long list of other sorts of things. We, we as Christians can be too harsh on homosexual sin at times and think that it's somehow worse than heterosexual sin. And, you know, when I teach this uh, class, we also talk about divorce, cohabitation, premarital sex, adultery, pornography, uh, polygamy, and all kinds of other stuff before we ever get to homosexuality and transsexuality and non-binary 
um, you know, the, the homosexual, well, <laughs> I just pointed this out to a Bible class. In 2008, the state of California passed a referendum that forbade uh, homosexual marriage. So in 2008, even a liberal state like California was still against homosexual marriage and against the uh, profligation of that sort of mentality. But by 2014, 2015, our Supreme Court, uh, the culture changed so much in those few years of acceptance that the Supreme Court said, no, we're going to allow homosexual uh, people to actually engage in marriage as well uh, throughout the United States. So, yeah, it's been a a huge change shift in my lifetime from where we hardly ever talked about homosexuality. And when we did, it was seen as as worse than any other sort of sin, which it's not. It's on par with all other sorts of sexual sin, but not not worse than another way. But um, uh, yeah, now then we are completely accepting as a culture and the dangers, well, these verses in Leviticus don't talk about transsexuality, but that's the next step that we've gone to. And the the dangers of, well, kind of put it like the, of child sacrifice in these senses of sacrificing our children's yeah. bodies by allowing them or encouraging them to change their bodies when they're 12, 14, 16 years old, when the whole, <laughs> whole body of evidence is 80 to 95 percent of children who voice some sort of gender dysphoric uh, sentence when they're younger, 80 to 95 percent do grow out of it and return back to a more normal heterosexual uh, way of, of feeling in their lifetimes. But uh, mercy, we are doing some horrible things, allowing some horrible things to be done to some children's bodies Absolutely. Yeah. No, and you you see the great harm that comes again when the sixth commandment is abused. Such a glorious gift of God, when it is misused, brings such great sorrow and pain. Now, you you mentioned that that sometimes these verses, especially verse 22 there, is is called a clobber verse. And and oftentimes, the the way that at least I've heard it is is they'll say, well, you're trying to clobber me with this verse, but Jesus never never says homosexuality is wrong, is is the claim that's made. So... Talk about that claim. Is is that fair, or how does the New Testament address this same issue? Yeah. Uh, in the Gospels, we don't have any evidence that Jesus has explicitly used the term homosexual, uh, at, but we do from Paul and the apostles in other places. So uh, Jesus talked about porneia, which was a general term for sexual sin uh, across the board. And so all sexual sin was something that Jesus was against. Uh, I think by implication, we can say either homosexual sexual sin or heterosexual sexual right. sin. Jesus was against it because he was Yahweh who had designed men and women to be binary, to be man and woman from the very beginning. And as you said, uh, give us this gift even before the fall, uh, just the way that he wanted things to be. So when our brains can change in various ways, and there's a whole host of reasons why, you know, somebody might be tempted towards homosexual sin, other people tempted, tempted towards heterosexual sin. We don't understand you know, scientifically all the reasons for that, but we don't need to because we're all sinners who are genetically prone to sin. Uh, some of us might struggle with the seventh commandment more than the sixth or the eighth commandment more than the fifth, uh, but we're all 
tempted uh, as long as we are simultaneously saint and sinners in this lifetime, we will always be tempted towards sin. And some people just tempted towards homosexual or same-sex attraction sorts of feelings, um, which, again, just as that whole sexual identity issue, uh, people who think I should be who my feelings tell me to be, well, that's where your if your source of authority is from your feelings, you will go one direction. But if your source of authority is from God's Word and church's teachings, uh, hopefully presented in loving, tactful ways, um, then hopefully your main identity will be your Christian identity. And again, there's just tons of, of books out there uh, by, by people who are struggling with same-sex attraction and letting us know how difficult it is for them, but they are trying to live celibate lives. Um, I attended a few hours of a conference called Revoice uh, a few months ago, and it's just a group of people, again, mostly Presbyterians, but a few Lutherans and others involved in it as well, uh, where they admit, you know, this is my struggle. I'm struggling with same-sex attraction or transsexual sorts of feelings, but I am committed to living a celibate life uh, because primarily I am a Christian first. And so I applaud them. They uh, struggles with loneliness because they don't see themselves as eventually ever getting married and so forth. Um, I applaud them for striving to live out that that Christian sexual life. So. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's where we what we were saying earlier about the identity and where you start with your identity matters. If you start with my identity is is going to be found in my sexuality, you're going to go all you have the great potential to go in completely wrong ways. Right. But if you start with the identity, I am a baptized child of God, then your feelings and, and the other behaviors, you're going to put that into service of that according to God's Word. And, and again, it's going to be a fight, a struggle. We know this. St. Paul talks about this. The, the Christian life is one in which we fight against our sin. But when, when we have that identity there first as the baptized child of God, we're going to be equipped for that fight by God's gifts. Now, and I know, Dr. Mars, we don't have, have time for a full conversation on this matter, but at least I think it, it's worth a, a couple minutes. You know, this is the matter of, of homosexuality is something that's just in our faces all the time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, how, how do we as Christians make a good confession of what God teaches and, and stand firm on His Word, all the while speaking to sinners who are in need of the, the gospel and the good news that, that alone can provide healing in these things. How do we how do we try to navigate that tension? Which again, I know we don't have we could spend hours talking yeah, about this. Yes, yeah. And, but and just I, do, I mean I, a brief yeah. word on on that kind of topic I think would be helpful. Yeah. The, one of the key New Testament verses, I mean Romans 1, 1 Timothy 1 all have some uh, verses about homosexuality. 1 Corinthians 5 uh through 7 but specifically, I love these verses, and they get quoted a lot in our Lutheran circles. And in the CTCR document, they, they focus on this. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Again, it's just a calling to remember whose we are. and Not just that we've been baptized into Christ's death and resurrection, which is completely true, but because we have been, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And so, therefore, we don't want to sully uh, that Spirit's presence in our life in some 
particular way uh, through adultery or homosexuality or whatever. Now, again, we do want to emphasize, and I'm glad you asked this question, we need to listen and love our friends and relatives who are struggling with the devil, the world, and our, and our sinful flesh with a myriad of novel temptations. Uh, well, they're not completely novel, but they've gotten stronger in the last 10 or 20 years about homosexuality. And again, quite often they're wanting to talk with their Christian friends about it. They are lonely and looking for community. And the church is the community that many of them are looking for. But when they feel like these clobber verses just kind of get whacked on them over and over again, and they're not listened to with their own struggle. I mean, we listen to people who have struggles with autism or other sorts of you know, dementia or other sorts of things. We, we want to listen and be uh, empathetic to them. Can we also be empathetic to those people who are struggling with these? And again, in my counseling background, I've spent time with probably 30-plus gay men uh, for five hours or more in, in counseling with each one of them, and they don't want to have this struggle. They, they want to, to feel more heterosexual or at least feel like they can live out a celibate life in, in uh, faithful ways. And when they're Christian brothers and sisters, at least listen to them and don't treat them uh, as anathema. Um, you know, still point out, you know, this is a sinful temptation that you have. But again, all of us have other sinful temptations that we struggle with. Can we point them to Jesus where the forgiveness of their sin actually lies? So. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And again, I think the the thought that this is there is a religious aspect to it. It's not it's not only the matter of behavior, but there is the matter of faith. And and to, to connect those dots that to find the central identity, who who are you? And, and to identify first and foremost as the baptized child of God, uh, one who needs the forgiveness of sins, those are going to be be very helpful in these conversations. And again, there's no silver bullet. I mean, I know I'm sure you no. wish there was too. There's not. Yeah. Uh, but but listening and speaking the truth from God's word in love for the sake of of giving the real forgiveness of sins, the real healing that can come only in the gospel of Christ, uh, it, when that's our aim, we're we're at least in a better place. There's no silver bullet, but but we're we're in a better place uh, to to speak the truth in love that that according to the the work of the Holy Spirit, God, that God willing that person will hear. Now, now, Dr. Mars, there's a little bit more in this chapter. You've mentioned this in passing, at least a little bit, that the Lord gives a pretty strong warning here at the end, don't become unclean in this way, because it is for this very uncleanness that the promised land is going to vomit out the people that are there, and that can happen to you too. So watch out. So to talk to us a little bit about—we've got about three minutes here. Talk to us about that warning that's given, because it is important that we hear it. But then as, as we start to wrap up, Help us, help us with the shame aspect of this chapter, because there's a lot of shame when we think about the sins against the sixth commandment. So, so talk to us about the warning, but also help us to close with with how do we how do we deal with the shame? Where does the shame get taken away? Where do we take that uh, as Christians? Yeah, yeah, you kind of alluded. Um, I tend to use Galatians six one a lot. Uh, Brothers, if someone is trapped in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore them, but gently, lest you yourself fall into temptation. When we're interacting with other people, it's important to do it as as lovingly and as gently as we can directly, but 
sometimes, and God is also very patient, gentle with this for years and years and years, but then God does know when the line has been crossed and is, nope, they're not going to, they're not going to repent anymore. I'm going to have to have them vomited out of this, of this land. Uh, I've heard any number of stories of men who lived out a, a gay lifestyle for 10 or 20 or 30 years and then realized the futility of it and repented and came back to their church, came back to their families uh, in repentance. I think we need to pray for those people who are trapped in that. Uh, and also remember that God did vomit out the Canaanites, but not completely. We just had the uh, Matthew 15 gospel lesson in our churches, the Canaanite woman's faith, when Jesus goes up north, up into what's now Lebanon, uh, to uh, get away from the Jewish uh, Pharisees and so forth, this Canaanite woman showed the greatest faith that he exhibits, that he observes in all other than the other uh, Roman centurion who had also great faith. But she was a Canaanite, and so she had come to faith in, in the Messiah who was to come to this area as well. We are in constant prayer of hoping that these people will come to the faith anew or back to the faith that they were raised in at an earlier stage of their lives. So. The Reverend Dr. Rick Mars is Senior Professor of Practical Theology and Pastoral Counseling at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He has been helping us today to study Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 to 30. Dr. Mars, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you very much for having me again, Pastor Apple. The Lord is God. He is the only God. He gives to us His holiness in His Son, Jesus Christ. His sacrifice has covered us so that our sins are forgiven. That is who we are. And when we struggle with these sexual sins, when the shame is great, we turn to Christ, for He covers us in our shame. His righteousness cleanses us from all sin. We turn to Him in our sin and shame to find forgiveness. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Leviticus 18, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.